Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are taking a different turn from usual by discussing the inhumanity of a lockdown. And it will take us a little bit to get to that point because we're going to lay some groundwork in advance talking about biopolitics, a topic or a thesis put forward by the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben. But first, I think we'll just say a word about why we are broaching this subject. We are habitually reserved and do not indulge in the commentariat uh, most of the time about current events we have on occasion in the past. But after um, an extended discussion, including over the past three years, Dad and I decided this is one that we did want to talk about. Um, We have generally the same... um, overarching perspective on what we'll be talking about with biopolitics, but some divergent conclusions about uh, the COVID lockdowns in particular. And we might also get to uh, some divergent views about the vaccine. And one of the reasons we are bringing this to you is because we know how much trouble, uh, pain and agony many people of goodwill have had trying to talk about these things and extremely uh, divergent, not to say hostile views. So we are hoping that with a common ground, of a lens for looking at this, as well as modeling a way of having different interpretations of current events, we can also give all of you out there some tools for your own ongoing difficult conversations about these things, as well as uh, weighing out the damage that has been inflicted upon humanity over the past three years. Dad, are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready to rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> Sarah, The, uh, the everything you said is so But we do think I have a common framework for getting at the issues involved here, and that is the term that you use, the neologism, biopolitics. And uh, I think that uh, this is a very useful way of framing uh, the controversies that occurred in the last three years and trying to muddle our way through them. Um, And I want to draw upon, as you mentioned, of uh, this Italian philosopher, Giorgio Gambin, whom I discovered uh, years ago when I was doing research for my book before Auschwitz. Um, I found him to be among the most profound interpreters of uh, the, uh, uh, the, the program, the National Socialist um, Program to Improve the Health of the German Folk. And here's a quote directly from Agamben. There is no reason to doubt that the, scare quote, humanitarians, end quote, considerations that led Hitler and Himmler to elaborate a euthanasia program immediately after their rise to power were in good faith, end quote, or for that matter led to the eventual construction of the death factories. You see, once the decision to kill has been made on biopolitical grounds, it's a duty to dispatch the targeted as humanely as possible. So the factory-efficient death camps arose out of the demoralizing experience for the perpetrators of watching day after day the death agonies of their victims by gunfire. And here's another quote from Agamben, echoing Hannah Arendt about Adolf Eichmann. I would remind that Eichmann never failed to reiterate, apparently in good faith, that he did what he did according to his conscience 
in order to obey what he believed were the precepts of Kantian morals, to do one's duty in spite of humane sentiments to the contrary. And then Agamben concludes, A norm which affirms that we must renounce the good to save the good is as false and as contradictory as that which, in order to protect freedom, imposes renunciation of freedom. End quote. So that's kind of an entree into this entree into this into this um, framework in which um, we want to try to tackle an analysis of what's transpired in these past three years. Yeah, I'd like to add two comments to that right away. First is that it's always a trope to go right to the Nazis and accuse your your uh, chosen bad guy of being a Nazi. So I think it's important to say at the outset um, why we're beginning with that and why we're invoking a Gumbin. And the reason is, uh, especially for listeners, you will have listened by now to our episode on Before Auschwitz based on Dad's work, that using Nazi simply as an ad hominem attack is, of course, um, stupid, pointless, and dilutes the severity of the problem, and that it is, in fact, looking specifically at the details, the historical and political and details and the rationalizations that went on in the Third Reich that helps us to understand and make a precise critique. And what Agamben analyzed long before COVID came along was this biopolitical approach. So we're not simply accusing those we dislike in their COVID decisions of being Nazis because that's a handy term of abuse but because it is, there are very specific and detailed analogies between them, which we will explore as we go along. And the other thing is, though, and this this will, uh, I think, Dad, this was part of your point in Before Auschwitz. Um, I have often thought, Dad, in the past three years of the opening line of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, I think that's right, <laughs> which he says, all men by nature pursue the good. Is that right? Is that Aristotle? Or yes, that that's correct. That's Nicomachean ethics, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Whew, I remember that from graduate school. I've thought of that so often because I, there, I'm sure there are bad faith actors out there. I'm quite positive there are. But overwhelmingly, what I have seen is good faith actors who have profoundly desired to be good and righteous. And I think unless we can grant that, um, unfortunately, which means we also have to grant it to someone like Eichmann, who sincerely believed, as far as we can tell, that he was being good and righteous, we will never get to the real issue, which is not people's feelings or intentions, but whether or not what they actually are pursuing is good. The question is not whether most people want to pursue the good, it's whether they perceive the good rightly. And Agamben's comment there that uh, in the end, uh, to renounce the good to save the good is not good, (laughs) but we need to be able to get into the details and look specifically at what we're claiming is good in order to uh, justify our pursuit of it. Or we could just quote Martin Luther. Of course, everybody seeks the good. The issue is, what good do you seek? (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Well, I I think this is a hard step. I mean, I I think it's partly an American cultural thing that good intentions are all that matter. Good outcomes or consequences of your intentions, it's like almost like like impolite or obscene to require looking at the outcomes and see if they're actually what you intended. Yeah, sure. That's exactly right. And I think to get out of that 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 confusion um, uh, about good intentions being the sole uh, criterion of judgment, uh, we have to actually take up this concept of biopolitics and ask how it can do this terrible work that Agamben attributes to it, of, of perverting the good, uh, renouncing the good to save the good, 
or renouncing freedom in order to save freedom? How can biopolitics pull that off? Um, and I think I have to throw in here, Sarah, a little caveat, because it was actually the French philosopher Michel Foucault who invented or created the neologism biopolitics. And it really stems from his book, Madness and Civilization. And this is uh, uh, basically, Foucault argues that the invention of insane asylums was to be a place where you put your enemies, who you've othered by calling them mad, simply because they swim against the rational consensus of the culture. And for Foucault, then, there really isn't any mental illness. There's only power relations. And the people who have power can will, and will call the people they hate mentally ill. And, and then this is basically his, the genesis of his idea of biopolitics, that the state now comes in to support uh, the institution's uh, um, uh, sanitariums for the mentally ill as a way of imprisoning political prisoners. And that uh, whole thing is what Foucault basically called biopolitics. But that's not how Agamben deals with this issue. And I want to just throw in this caution here. If you hear the word biopolitics and you're thinking of Foucault's reduction of everything to power relationships, that's not what um, Agamben is arguing. Mm. Okay, great. Good clarification. What he wants to do is, how do you rationalize genocide on the medical analogy of surgically excising a cancer tumor from the body politic, not just an individual's body, but the body politic? That's the, that's the issue that he's trying to get at. How does that medicalized analogy of state-sponsored uh, genocide uh, uh, pull, it, pull itself off and convince people to do it? with humanitarian uh, rationalizations, convinced that they're doing something ultimately good. That's the issue. And so um, I think also with Agamben, he's trying to point out, you said, talked about you know name-calling people you disagree with Nazis. Um, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, the point here that Agamben is really trying to get us to see is how close we actually are. We, American liberal Democrats, speaking for myself, right? Uh, how close little, we are. Little D Democrat, yeah. Little, little D Democrats. How close we are uh, to the dynamics that overtook Weimar Germany. As I've argued frequently on the podcast, how close, perilously close we are to Weimarization. Anyway, we face a dilemma that all modern people face since the time of Darwin. Biology affords no criteria for judging the progress of a creature like us human beings. Survival was a precondition of human progress, but it afforded no uh, criteria uh, to define progress or, or um, measure it. Uh, in the last analysis, natural selection does not mean survival of the fittest, but simply survival of those who survived. Survival is a brute fact, not a moral victory. So natural selection, according to Darwin, is a purely algorithmic process of alleles drifting in whatever direction the shifting tides of environmental conditions draw them. And it 
provides no criteria by which to measure, in any moral sense, progress or regress. On the other hand, any attempt to resolve morality into the laws of nature opens us up to something very much akin to national socialism, which in its essence was the biopolitically bold, even artistic endeavor to take evolution into our own hands, to intentionally mold plastic, um, and here's a technical term we'll talk about, bare life. National Socialism, with its eugenic and euthanasia policies, was simply the nation-state taking responsibility for the biological health of the population, according to the best scientific thinking of its time. That's so chilling because you see exactly the good intention behind it. So, uh, you know, the, the, the scientific world makes the depressing discovery of uh, natural selection and evolution. And th- those who grasp it on some level realize it has no teleology. It has no point. This is terrifying to people, especially of a religious or traditional bent, which is why so many still oppose it because they're concerned by its moral implications. And that's usually associated with conservatives. But I think the the upsetting point here is that the same concern about the lack of a moral direction also infects just as much, if not more, (laughs) progressives for whom, you know, people for whom progress is an ideal don't always think through the consequences that if you are seeking progress, then at some point you have to excise all the things that stand in the way of progress. And still today, it's astonishing how often you hear things that, that, uh, translated properly mean that we have to take evolution into our own hands to develop the right way to cultivate the right things without any thought of what that would mean you would have to remove in the process, much less the fact that that is no longer evolution anymore. (laughs) If people, human beings, are taking evolution into their own hands, it is not evolution, at least not what Darwin meant by it, by natural selection. Natural selection has no teleology. Right. It's, It's actually human breeding is what you're talking about. Yeah. And there's a conservative Catholic author, Richard Weichart, who published an impressive study titled From Darwin to Hitler. And he makes this point, documents this point thoroughly. Uh, now, I think there's problems with his, his way of analyzing the issues. But uh, this is simply a factual truth. I'm quoting Richard Weichart. Many mainstream scientists, professors, and physicians including those identifying with the political left, upheld views about Darwinism and eugenics quite similar to Hitler's. Hitler's ideas indeed derived ultimately from respectable scientists and scholars who were grappling with the implications of Darwinism for ethics and society. They heaped scorn on traditional ethics in all sorts of ways, and everything for them became subject to the ineluctable laws of nature that Darwin had revealed. As a corollary to this, science became the arbiter of all truth. Not even ethics or morality can escape from the claims being made on behalf of science to protect the biological health of the nation and to provide the criterions by which the state can make judgments in this respect biopolitically. Now, this is what's interesting. I mean, Agamben agrees with Weichert about this, that science has become our culture's new religion. 
even if he doubts, Agamben doubts, that we can return to traditional Christian Platonism or dogmatically reject evolutionary biology, as Richard Weikert seems to do. On the contrary, Agamben's acute observation, and this is the point I was making earlier, is rather that, and I'm quoting, if Nazism was able to coincide, at least at its point of departure, with the great philosophy and science of the 20th century, it would be foolish to believe it is possible to extricate oneself from this uneasy proximity we have to it today, end quote. That, I think, is the penetrating point. We don't realize how close we are in our uh, adoption of biopolitics to the uh, starting point of National Socialism. No, and I, I do think you see it across the board, too. You see it from the, you know, the alt-right desire to have a, a purely white race and to prevent miscegenation, which has been a long paranoid fear um, in a multiracial place like the United States. But you also see this in this uh, a passionate concern for the the physical, the actual biological, physical health and then the, this language of progress about, you know... <laughs> making sure everyone is on board and going in the same direction towards towards progress. And all of it is underpinned by, you know, it, it really does have this naked, competitive struggle for survival underneath it, even if it's cloaked in a lot of language of righteousness and, and looking out for the good of, of whether it's your tribe or your whole nation. There's something that kind of underlying um, purgative element of, of natural selection that underlies it. Oh, absolutely. And I, for, for Hitler, war was the great purgation. The experience of war was how you weeded out the unfit, and the strong who survived the war then would have proved themselves victorious in the, in the natural struggle of life. Absolutely yeah. right, and okay. and I think it's also but, worth saying we you know we did we've done episodes on on healing and miracles. Um, there there is actually it seems a severe physical and mental health crisis in the developed world, so called. Uh, it's not like there isn't cause for concern. And again, th this is the, the 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 righteous urge to to look at the calamitous problem of like, you know, American healthcare is a shambles in so many ways. American health is a shambles. No wonder people are worked up about it and concerned about it. So it's not that the concern isn't real or the desire to help isn't genuine. It's, you know, as we're going to be unpacking here, this biopolitical um, uh, and um, Darwinian form of control is where it takes the, the deeply scary turn. Yeah, right. So, yeah, obviously, of course, we should be concerned about the biological health of the population. I mean, that's ABCs of Christian love and, and the ministry of healing that the church's gospel sponsors. Uh, and so, so that, that's a no-brainer. That, that's easy to affirm. The problem here is not about bios, about life, but about politics. And um, uh, especially a Darwinian take on politics as the contest for the reins of power. And this is where Agamben's analysis really becomes profoundly important. Uh, he makes, in many of his books, a powerful argument that political sovereignty consists, now this is his technical language, consists in the state of exception. What does he mean by that? 
he means the exceptional suspension of citizenship rights and the rule of law in a state of emergency, otherwise known as martial law or dictatorship. That is always latent, Agamben argues, as the very presupposition of the order of rights instituted by the sovereign drawing of legal and ontological jurisdictions. That's a a, a thick thought. Let me try to say it again. Always latent in any form of political sovereignty is the emergency situation in which the sovereign can say to defend the order that we have established in ever-threatening circumstances of an emergency, the sovereign can suspend the rule of law and retains as thereby his own exceptional right to do anything to anybody as needed to perpetuate the instituted order. That emergency power, the state of exception, is the price of national security. And and in his great book, Homo Zakr, Agamben traces the genesis of political sovereignty back to the ancient practice of the ban as the constituting power by which a polity is formed through mechanisms of inclusion and exclusion. You're in, but no, you're out, usually along various markers, biological, biopolitical markers. The sovereign is above the law in determining to whom the law applies. The band are placed outside the protection of law by the sovereign's determination of citizenship boundaries, also within its own territorial boundaries. Especially within its own territorial boundaries. Right. That's why the state, for example, can declare a medical emergency and a quarantine for the sake of the greater good, the greatest good for the greatest number. Even if that means that you're sending, like Governor Cuomo did in New York, sending all the old people, uh, all the sick people, off to the old folks' home where they'll they'll get infected and die together with uh, Lebens und Versus Lebens, life not worth living. Right. So I I think, again, it's important to say here that this potentiality potentiality exists also uh, within democratic systems, systems that are built to have checks and balances. And it doesn't have to happen simply because a tyrant walks in and declares that it's so. It can also happen that the people demand it because they are frightened. And so they want one person or, you know, some some strong figure to be in charge and to make uh, highly controlling decisions in order to protect them from what they fear. Of course, that also depends on them having been made deeply, deeply afraid. So there is definitely a kind of feedback loop that's happening here. But it's not like this only happens in North Korea. This can also happen in democratic republics. Absolutely not. We have some very specific things that Gaman says about that. Uh, But one more uh, uh, building block to his argument is the commodification of the human body which is he renders by this strange German term, Blossus Lebens, uh, bare life or mere life or uh, bodies uh, um, reduced nothing but bare physical existence, stripped of all vestiges of social relations that make for more than bare life, like the man on the road left to die by the bandits in Jesus' parable. 
bare life. They are bereft of neighbors. They cease to be comrade, friend, sister, brother, boss, colleague, Scythian or Greek, and are reduced to biological existence as such. A German phrase is Dasein ohne Leben, Leben und Wertes Lebens. These slogans from the Nazi eugenics regime are the sense of the odd term bare life, Blasses Lebens. It's a concept by which one determines who does not count as the neighbor to whom love is owed, or as a citizen with rights, but as mere body which can rather be commodified, enslaved, and then disposed. Now, here's the twist. That all sounds uh, like it would be the end of the rule of law to do that to somebody, right? But the state of emergency allows exactly that to be executed. The twist is that bare life in an emergency is and can be any or all of us whose bodies are under a sovereign also within its own territory. Any of us can be locked down and quarantined. So what I found about this in Agamben to be very insightful and very terrifying is the way in which an argument can be made to serve its exact opposite. And so what I mean by this is if you talk about bare life, the sheer fact of being a biological human being, um, to it is important to affirm the existence of the bare biological human being because that is, in fact, the beginning of the claim to be a citizen or a neighbor for people who have been excluded. So, for instance, I think back to how um, uh, enslaved black um, imports from Africa were defined as only, uh, what is it, three-eighths of a human being. And um, part of the argument that needed to be made and the change that had to come was to say, no, a black human being is a 100% human being. And the um, argument for uh, a pro-life position is that a fetus, though a very small human being, is still fully a human being. The fact of its life as a human is what makes it count. So arguing forward from the bare fact of existing as a human being to the claim that you should be counted as a human, as a citizen, as a neighbor, etc., I think is is absolutely essential because if you drop out the, the, the embodied fact of being a human, then it becomes very easy to define, well, you're not really human, you know, or you don't, you're not human the way I'm human, etc. And those arguments have been made. What I think Agamben points out is that if you grant that, the problem is, as necessary as it might be, it can be flipped so that instead of being the starting point for arguing forward, it can be turned into the maximization point and saying the only thing that matters, the only thing the state or biopolitics or whoever's in charge in the state of emergency cares about is the sheer biological fact of your existence, not any of the other stuff that embeds you, as you mentioned in a history, a tradition, a family, a friend network, etc. And that becomes, uh, as we'll get towards in the specific case of, of quarantine and lockdown, is saying as long as we keep your body alive, it doesn't matter if we slice off every single other aspect of your humanity, such as your, your access to other human beings in public. And so bare life goes from being the basis for being included in the human family to being the excuse to exclude you from the human family. I find that terrifying. Yes, and it's also the that's the linchpin of his argument about why it can happen here, why democracy is no exception. Uh, 
Now, this is really profound philosophical analysis because it is as conceptually reduced to mere physical existence. I am a body. I am somebody, right? It's reduced to mere physical existence that persons are equalized. That's the democratic revolution and thus entitled to the very same rights. That's the democratic revolution. Yet at the same time, again, Agamben points out, as you were indicating, this democratization to the bare equality of bare bodily life in turn compels the law to assume the care of the body as a matter of sovereign right, indeed paternal duty, so that the basic life which is within the constituted order is enabled and safeguarded. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound like the democratic state taking responsibility for the physical health of the nation? Sounds, it does sound good. But here's the catch. In biopolitical modern democracy, Agamben argues, the physician and the sovereign seem to exchange roles. But that will mean that just as a politicians can now appear as healers, as pseudo-messiahs, so also physicians can now occupy the sovereign place of exception in determining by triage who belongs uh, for care and who will be banned, left uncared for, the life not worthy of life. And further, Agamben argues, this medicalizing of politics under modern democracy can't call any halt. It rather relentlessly expands with the creeping emergency created by the very ecologically unsustainable project of modernity's conquest of nature. It's all in a big feedback loop feeding on itself. The life that with the, and this is how he's talking about the French Revolution here, quote, the life that with the Declaration of Rights became the ground of modern democratic sovereignty now becomes the object of state politics its own principal vocation as the formation and care of the body of the people. This is the contradiction in biopolitical democracy. The mere body, the bare life that is presupposed as the bearer of rights, cannot in fact and under modern economic and political conditions care for itself without the protection of the sovereign to which it then must submit also submit to its self-justifying prerogative to secure life coercively. So, from this analysis, Agamben concludes, modern democracies thus enter into, quote, a lasting crisis, and the state decides to assume directly the care of the nation's biological life as one of its proper tasks. Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, we could, we won't, but we could shoot off in another direction to say how the non-transparency of cost and the unholy alliance of, of healthcare and um, state in America, which is a travesty in so many ways, uh, allows this biopolitical situation to proliferate. And it certainly does not have to be that way. Um, but it also makes me think of um, at the far end of climate change activism is a profound hatred of the human body and the desire to radically reduce, if not eliminate, the number of human beings on the planet. And that this is also a way of, of taking control of, of, let's say, the bare life of the earth itself um, and declaring a great deal of human life, life not worth living as well. 
Yeah, there will there will be a huge process of triage, no doubt about it. Uh, and the constant cultivation of a sense of emergency will rationalize and justify ever more extreme measures. Now, as Christian realists, Sarah, as Christian realists, we should recognize with Luther that any state, democratic, communist, whatever, monarch, monarchical, uh, I don't care what era, oligarchy, any state, qua-constituted order, is always also a monopoly on the means of coercion. And that's exactly what enables the self-exemption of sovereignty to constituted laws and rights. And just in our own recent history, you had the Bush-Cheney administration with their renditions and waterboarding, or you had the Obama administration's kill lists and drone warfare. These are examples of this state of exception utilizing the monopoly on the means of coercion for extra-legal activities. By the way, former President Jimmy Carter uh, published in 2012 an editorial in the New York Times entitled A Cruel and Unusual Record, in which he protested against this evolution, both Bush-Cheney and Obama-Biden. Now, what's deeply troubling about Agamben's analysis, of course, is that it opens up a a zone of, of indiscernibility between modern democracy and equally modern fascism, notwithstanding the important um, empirical differences still between them. That's kind of the framework we want to take to look at the COVID policies of the recent past. Right. So I think the the point to to follow up here, as you said, as as Christian realists, um, we do not um, in any way assume it is possible to have nonviolent governance of the human population now or ever. That is what the Lord Jesus will do when he returns again in glory. It is an eschatological certainty, but it is not a a programmable fact, uh, no matter what we claim in the way of progress in, in human nature, which means that all governments, like you said, are going to engage in violence. That is simply a fact. So the issue is not eliminating the violence, but the extent of constraints on violence, especially against arbitrary violence. And um, actually, uh, I was preaching during Lent uh, through the Passion of Jesus. I, I That's what I've, I've gotten in the habit of doing rather than, uh, you know, only on Palm Sunday or Good Friday. And um, and I just sort of, as I, I went along, I'm sure this is not a, by any means a new idea of mine, but the contrast between the mob that demands Jesus' crucifixion and Pilate who authorizes Jesus' crucifixion is the difference between hot violence and cold violence. And we are uh, much more instinctively afraid of hot violence, you know, the, you know, the criminal attack on the streets or the guns blaring um, or the war, uh, the bandits attacking, right? That our, our fear is for that. And what uh, government, stable government does for us is to tamp down on the hot violence. But it's not a trade-off to no violence. It's a trade-off to cold violence. And Pilate, as the emblematically indifferent exercise of power to just eliminate this problematic person who he knows perfectly well is innocent. But okay, well, just keep the hot violence of the mob under control. Fine, I will authorize the cold violence of his execution, even though I know he doesn't deserve it. And so I think what 
we're looking at here is that there are many kinds of cold violence <laughs> in modern um, governmental options, but it, it's on a continuum. It depends very much on what end of the continuum you're on, but it's always going to be a, ma a matter of constraining violences of all kinds, hot and cold, not a living, uh, aiming for some sort of utopia or giving up uh, cold violence altogether because hot violence will simply come and take its place. That is why a lot of Judeans could put up with the Roman Empire because at least it kept banditry under control. Well, I think that even the deeper, I agree with all of that, Sarah, that's very good. The, and a deep danger is that the utopians are blind to their own violence. That's oh, yeah. you, like you were saying earlier, that our good intentions and our desire for the good are, cannot constitute a justification for our violent behavior. Uh, even if we argue that we're doing uh, evil for the sake of the good or something like that. I mean, seriously, people need to know the story of the Bolshevik Revolution and what happened in Russia over the next several decades. It is exactly that, the deep desire to counteract the horrible um, indifference and cold violence of the czarist regime and the terrible treatment of the serfs and all the awful things that went wrong, you know, taken over by utopians who then had a mission to simply eliminate everyone who stood in the way of Russian progress. And, you know, if you have to murder millions and millions of people to get there, well, it's just this once and then we'll have the good society and everything will be fine. And of course, the, the Nazis had the same rationale. And we have to ask seriously now how much of the Western democracies participate in these dynamics, and indeed whether the Western democracies have become so corrupted by biopolitics and the state of exception uh, that they they only exist as 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 ideological fictions. At least that's a Gombin's uh, uh, hunch that the world of bourgeois democracy built on rights parliaments and the division of powers and the rule of law is just falling apart right now and being replaced by a new despotism uh, with the pervasiveness of its controls and with its suspension of all political activity will be far worse than the totalitarianisms we have known thus far very dark dark prophecies making there and i think it's i think it's just important to say also that he is an italian that italians have actually had fascism on their home territory and that even when italy sort of became a democracy after the war it is notoriously one of the most corrupt democracies in all of europe or at least all of western europe so he and and the the lockdown they had in italy was singularly severe i mean there are a lot of bad lockdowns but the italian one was way over over the top, um, even compared to other countries. So uh, he, he has a, a right to his deep, deep alarm. And we don't need to simply accept his judgment about uh, from his own experience of Italian democracy and apply it without uh, any discrimination or reservation to what's going on in America or elsewhere. But uh, it, it's worth listening to his his dark prophecies all the same before it gets to that point anywhere else. Well, he, he writes something like this. And I think this is pertinent uh, outside of Italy and in the rest of the Western democracies. We must seriously ask ourselves whether some of the words that we keep on using, such as democracy, legislative power, elections, constitution, actually lost their original meanings a long time ago. And then he says, only if we succeed in gazing lucidly at the new forms of despotism that have replaced those words, 
will we be able to define new forms of resistance with which to oppose that despotism? And that quotation, Sarah, comes from this little book you discovered and had me read, entitled By Agamben, Where Are We Now? The Epidemic as Politics, that was a compilation of Agamben's blog posts and essays between February of 2020 and November of 2020. And I think we can turn to that now for a more specific discussion of the recent um, experience of COVID-19 and the politics surrounding it. Yeah, I'll just say I, I have been reading an assortment of, uh, let's call it lockdown criticism, trying to, for my my own, I don't know, conscience, I guess, and understanding to, to try to get some perspectives on what's going on. And, and there are a number that I have liked and found insightful, um, some that I have found to be way off the mark as well. And, you know, we're, as I said at the beginning, we're all midstream sorting through this as we go. But um, I, I thought Agamben was particularly insightful. And I knew, Dad, that you had um, spent some time studying his works and I think the, the the biopolitics angle on it and a lot of his very specific observations about how all this unfolded I thought were spot on so I thought that could that's why this ended up being the Agamben ended up being our, our guide through this topic okay well tell us some of the things he says about the recent past Sarah Oh, okay. So um, I, again, one more caveat. Uh, we're all midstream. We're recording this in uh, uh, spring of 2023. Uh, most restrictions are gone, but certainly not all. In fact, um, I'm traveling to the U.S. soon, and I have to get one last PCR test before I can re-enter Japan before it drops its strictures. <laughs> so um, anyway, so the, so this is us responding to Agamben's observations as lockdowns began to descend in 2020 and now looking with our hindsight of three years later. So um, so you mentioned, Dad, how he talked about how, how words change their meaning. And um, actually, just by way of, of introduction, the first thing that I think kind of set off my own internal alarm is that this was instantly called a pandemic and not an epidemic. Um, and I was just struck by why are we saying pandemic rather than epidemic? Um, it, it seemed almost like it was determined right from the start that this was going to be a worldwide thing and that the word epidemic was not um, sufficiently anxiety inducing. <laughs> And so this this leads into Agamben's point, which is that right from the get go, it was very hard to find out what was actually going on. And I don't just mean the origin of the virus or when exactly it started to spread. But for instance, he talks about how uh, he here. This is a quote. The risk of contagion in the name of which freedoms are limited has never been specifically stated. The numbers communicated are intentionally vague without any analysis in relation to the annual death rate or the definite causes of death, as would be essential if what was truly at, at stake was scientific. So, you know, and, and I, I saw this, too, as, as people would talk about, you know, X number of people dead of COVID with no distinction between like their ages, their comorbidities, a word that we all learned along the way, um, if it was definitely COVID of which they died, if the, they were of a certain age or health status in which they would have died anyway of something else had another virus gotten to them first and so forth. So there was always a great deal of vagueness about those sort of things. And then 
to me, even more disturbing than that was extraordinary vagueness about uh, the risk of contagion and also who was at risk from catching it. So all of these things, Agamben says, were kept deliberately obscured. And I, that certainly corresponds to my own perception of what unfolded. Yeah, I think, you know, naturally we can, uh, in hindsight, cut a break uh, to the authorities at the beginning uh, of the epidemic, the pandemic, uh, because nobody really knew what we were dealing with. And there was also the geopolitical anxiety that perhaps China had unleashed this quite deliberately. And that was, of course, a very dangerous thought. And there was, a, I think, quite a concerted effort to suppress even the hint that China might have done this intentionally. Um, and to this day, the preferred theory um, of the now the Federal Bureau of Investigation is that it was a lab leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology or something like that. Though it seems to have been, it still seems to have been an accidental leak, but based on research that I think any sane person now would say should never have been done. But we'll we'll set aside that discussion for, right. for other and, experts. And the relationships of U.S. funding to that is a question there. But the point is here that that we can give a break to the government's reaction at the very beginning of the pandemic. But as Agamben points out, it should have been become clear very, very early on that the people who were vulnerable were the senior citizens like me, people uh, over 65 or something like that. If we had comorbidities or something like that, we were very vulnerable to this disease in the same way we would have been vulnerable to any other viral uh, epidemic. And the, the, the indiscriminate lockdown shutting down the economy and the livelihoods and the social lives of all the younger people, right? And, and, and then also then pushing relentlessly the vaccines, uh, which were rushed through uh, the, the authorization process and then requiring certain kinds of people on pain of losing their jobs to have this injected into their bodies when they had a legitimate right to say this has not been sufficiently tested, I'm not sure about this, and so forth. All of these coercive policies that accumulated as time went on, when we should have recognized uh, that natural immunity would spread through the population, and as in fact happened, that the virus mutated in ways that were increasingly less lethal. All of that would have been uh, objects of normal scientific curiosity and dissemination. But the question is, why was anyone raising such questions scientifically, let alone politically and economically? Why was anybody was deemed a heretic? Agamben says, the dissemination of the sanitation terror needed an acquiescent and undivided media to produce a consensus, something that will prove difficult to preserve, however. Why? He writes, the medical religion, like every religion, has its heretics and dissenters, and respected voices coming from many different directions have contested the actuality and gravity of the epidemic. The other dis dissenting scientists and doctors for decades now, institutional powers have been suffering a gradual loss of legitimacy. 
these powers could mitigate this loss only through the constant evocation of a states of emergency. The political bromide, never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> so the deep question here is, is again, like you said, at the beginning, panic was a not surprising reaction. I certainly did. Um, Andrew's parents were with us when all this started happening, and we sent them home early because we realized if they got sick and went to the hospital, we would literally not be allowed to see them. And they obviously cannot speak Japanese. You know, when I was, you know, we were wearing gloves outside and sanitizing and masking up and everything. Fair enough at the beginning. The the question that Agamben's analysis forces us to is why didn't it ameliorate rapidly? Why did the actual accumulation of evidence not change policy? Why did it get more fierce, more aggressive? Why is it that the already established guidelines for dealing with an epidemic, which had been, you know, whoever is in charge of these things had said, you know, lockdown maximum two weeks ever. And why did it go on for years? <laughs> so the, the, the really perplexing question, the biopolitical question out of this is why did it get more and more controlling, more and more invasive, more and more demanding of citizenry's obedience to these strictures, which were less and less explicable on scientific grounds. That that is the to me that that is is the great question that we are left with. And um, I'm I'm concerned that everyone wants so badly to get back to normal life that this this will not be sufficiently examined for for yeah what it has done to us. Not to mention the collateral damage, which we'll get to in a second. Right. I think a couple of things there, Sarah, in response to what you said, the uh, the he uses the religious analogy, doesn't he, to talk about science as the new religion with its heretics and dissenters. And he even has a little discussion uh, in there about being smeared as a conspiracy theorist for raising these suspicions about what the government is telling us. And then he goes on to a really interesting couple of paragraphs about there really have been conspiracies that really did a lot of damage to people. <laughs> Bolshevik revolution, anyone? <laughs> yeah, right. And and then he, he talks about a human right to truth over against the censorship industry. And he makes this provocative statement. Quote, the truth remains such whether it is expressed by the left or enunciated by the right. If a fascist says that two plus two equals four, this is not an objection against mathematics, end quote. Yeah, in our internet era, we no longer believe that. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's all, ad hominem has replaced argument and evidence, um, I'm afraid, in, in so much of this. And I think he sees all of that as part of this answering your question. Uh, why did why did the normal process of science in which accumulating evidence would have informed adjustments in policy, particularly with regard to the enormous social costs that were being paid by, I mean, I've, uh, do I remember during the pandemic uh, at one point saying to your mother, if you had a design to drive small businesses off the scene and consolidate economic power in big corporations, this would be perfect. This was exactly what you were trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If you wanted to make sure that, that Amazon and Zoom ruled the world, this was the way to do it. And that's what he says. 
the jur juridical, Agamben writes, the juridical political apparatus of the Great Transformation is the state of exception, and its religious apparatus is science. On the social plane, this transformation relied for its efficacy upon digital technology, which, as is now evident, works in harmony with the new structure of relationships known as social distancing. Human relationships will have to happen on every occasion and as much as possible without physical presence. And he, then he goes on, there will f always be fools who will claim that such a situation can be considered wholly positive and that the new digital technologies have allowed us happily to communicate from a distance for some time. Well, Sarah, you and I enjoy that. We can't do this podcast without these new digital technologies. Uh, right, so that uh, it's a, it's a canard, but he he says here's the deeper point. Um, I do he writes I do not believe that a community based on social distancing distancing is humanly and politically livable. And the the deep danger, the atomization this great transformation is affecting, has created a mass in which it is impossible to move freely. And so it awaits for its head, a leader, a master, to move it. And what is he thinking of? Il Duce, dear Führer. Yeah. You know, I, I think we at some point down the line, we need to talk more deeply about the philosophy of technology, because this is also the story of the human race. And, but the important distinction to make here, you know, as you said, we're, we're using Skype to do this and microphones to record and a podcast and Internet to, to distribute it and everything. But there is a difference be, uh, between uses of technology and how technology reshapes us. And so I just, I've heard so many people say, oh, thank goodness we had the internet. How would we have survived lockdown without it? And that that is completely the wrong way to look at it. There never would have been a lockdown if there had not been an, an internet to keep the, give the circuses to the masses to keep them pacified and have the pretense of connection. So it, it's one thing to use, um, to use these tools in order to stay connected to people that you have a real human connection to, like a father and daughter to with each other. It's another thing when, as Agamben says, it becomes the ideal and the centerpiece and the mandate of the life that you're supposed to live. Dad, what strikes me so much about this and also with the all the new uh, stuff, people talking about AI right now, I've realized that that all discussions of AI on some level are proxy conversations about what it means to be human and what the human good is. And when I look at the social distancing, even the phrase social distancing and, and what um, Agamben says here, I can only conclude that there is such a profound hatred of human bodies. Maybe that is the, the real irony of the bare life thing is that in claiming to protect human bodies, actually there's nothing it hates more than human bodies. It's disgusted by bodies. It's disgusted by what bodies want to do, whether it is having sex or just hanging out together, sharing a meal, breathing each other's air. <laughs> there's there's this desire to control and trap bodies so that they cannot intermingle anymore. And I don't think it's just a tool of political control. It, it seems to me like there's this profound like docetism or Gnosticism in the, I don't know, 
in the air nowadays and maybe much accelerated by the experience of being a, an avatar or alternate version of yourself online. But I, I don't think any of this happens without a pre-existing hatred of bodies. Um, and, and so the, the lie that all this happened in order pr to protect the body is, is so aggressively uh, asserted in order to cover up the hatred of bodies that underlies all of it. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, Sarah. I just worry that the word hatred might be a little bit too evocative uh, when you talk about hatred of bodies. It's more like uh, something uh, more subtle, like contempt or indifference, I think. Maybe disgust. Maybe disgust. Disgust, yeah. Um, I, I, what Agamben says about this, remember his idea of bare life, reduction to bare life. And he, he says the first thing that the wave of panic, which paralyzed uh, uh, the country, showed was that our society believes in nothing more than bare life. We believe in nothing more than bare life. That is to say, we regard our, our bare physical existence as this um, baseline um, platform we have for anything else that we would enjoy. And it's we've got to have it at any cost. And he continues, it's now obvious that Italians are ready to sacrifice practically everything, their life conditions, their social relationships, their work, even their friendship, as well as their religious and political convictions when faced with the risk of getting sick. And he then he ana analyzes this thought a little further and says only a, a people who in their self-understanding have already succumbed internally to, their, to its own reduction to bare life would acquiesce passively to the suspension of rights. You're right about Gnosticism or, or Cartesian dualism. We've all internalized this. We think that what goes on in our heads is, the, is kind of the real me, and the body is simply a necessary platform that that for the time being uh, can, uh, um, sponsors it. And if we could get free of that sponsorship, how much happier our heads would be. I, I mean, I think it's fair to be afraid of getting sick. <laughs> I mean, I, I've uh, heard it theorized evolutionarily that xenophobia is actually downstream of the risk of infection when you meet a new population. And, you know, the vast numbers of people of the Americas who were simply killed by exposure to European smallpox is evidence that, yeah. you know, a little xenophobia is is a biologically evolutionarily sensible. So, so far as that goes, I get it. And you can't hang out with your friends if you're dead. <laughs> so, but what, what seems to me is what happens here is that that natural and so far as it goes, a commendable self-protection of, of your health was so exploited. And I, I think, uh, I, I think there, uh, Agamben is right. There's, there's uh, two things going on here. There's one, this internal um, collusion or, um, uh, split self going on here of, of people who had lost sense of their own integral embodied humanity. But also, I think it really needed to be pumped up with fear. And there's been so much fear pumped into the system to make sure that people's panic over their bare life, that they, they held up their end of the bargain and were sufficiently terrorized in order for the biopolitical goal to be achieved. Yeah, that's uh, one of the painful questions that comes out of Holocaust studies 
the passivity uh, of the of the poor victims of the Nazis, uh, how they acquiesced in their own uh, murder, uh, and like sheep being led to the slaughter. Um, not like they had any real alternatives under the circumstances. I don't mean to make any kind of cruel statement about that, but often scholars have looked back at this and said, if they were doomed to die anyway, why didn't they revolt? Why didn't they fight? You know, and I think Agamben's putting his finger on something here that that's important to understand that in your own self-understanding, you've already had to have had to agree with this this Gnostic anthropology that the real me is what goes on inside my head and the rest of me is bare life, that I hope I can preserve it, but if I lose it, well, you know, too bad. Yeah, I think there's also, though, profound disbelief that it could be happening. I had waves and waves of disbelief, like, what, what is going on here? Why is this Why is this happening? Why is this still happening? And I, it seemed to me a lot of the people I was in contact with just accepted it. And they, they just, I, I don't know, they're, they're less, I don't know, cynical than I am or something. But there, I think there was a real profound belief, like, well, if this wasn't a good idea, of course, they wouldn't, they, whoever they are, wouldn't be doing it. They wouldn't be locking us down. They wouldn't be mandating a vaccine unless it was for our good. And, you know, I for me, the disbelief was like, how can you trust them? How do you know? And there were enough cracks that I perceived for me to be growingly distrustful. But I think there is a certain kind of um, investment at this point for lots of people who went along with it to to admit now. It, it actually, this is a well-known uh, psychological phenomenon. Like the hardest thing to admit to is that you've been conned. Um, and that's why con men continue unchecked because no one wants to admit that they've been bilked <laughs> or tricked. It's so, it's humiliating in a way that, that almost nothing else is. And I think some of the ongoing, um, pieties around a lockdown and masking and vaccines and everything have to do with just the 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 internal uh, another kind of internal split that happens when you realize that you've been duped and you shouldn't have been but you fell for it anyway yeah and i've i've confessed on the podcast uh, some time back that the last time i was really conned was when colin powell testified before the united nations on the existence of weapons of mass destruction in Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And uh, I remember saying to a faculty colleague, what choice do we little people have but to believe what the authorities tell us? And then my embarrassment and disillusionment when we learned that Saddam did not have WMDs and that the whole thing had been concocted as a pretext for an unnecessary war and invasion that did a great deal of damage and by the way, set the precedent for the Russian behavior in recent years. So, uh, you know, this, we really need, uh, with the Gombin's help, to be a little bit more suspicious of what the authorities are telling us. The other thing that, and this really comes closer to our themes on this podcast, is Agamben's thoughts on the need for religion and how the church has discredited itself in these past three years. You want to say a few things about that? Yeah, this this is another reason why I thought Agamben would be a good guide for us, because uh, although, as far as I know, he is not a believer himself, he does not find uh, Christian 
uh, claims credible, um, he still has some respect for what the church ought to be doing if it actually believes what it says. And boy, there's nothing like being held to an account by an unbeliever who accuses you, the believer, of being inconsistent with your own beliefs. And um, so here, this is, this is, well, and it's interesting because he sets it in opposition to the fact that the loss of credibility of traditional religions like Christianity and, and others besides has not eliminated the religious impulse or actions of humans. It has simply shifted them to him primarily towards science or scientism, um, though I personally would say these things exhibit more cult-like behaviors than religious behaviors, properly speaking, but that's a, a separate discussion. Um, so here, here's an example from Agamben. He says, I should mention the most serious responsibility of those who ought to have protected human dignity. First of all, the church, now a handmaiden of science, the latter having become the true religion of our time, the church has radically disavowed its most essential principles, led by a pope named Francis, is forgetting that St. Francis embraced the lepers. It is forgetting that one of the works of mercy is visiting the sick. It is forgetting the martyrs teaching that we must be willing to sacrifice life rather than faith and that renouncing one's neighbor means renouncing faith. Um, I, I found that very, of course, powerful. Um, and also, again, as an Italian living close to, the, to Vatican City, um, the accusation against uh, Pope Francis is, is, is very harsh. Um, but I, I think... Um, this gets right back to the issue of how do you know what the good is? Because his last statement there is renouncing one's neighbor means renouncing faith uh, from a, you know, a Christian perspective. And for me, what I saw was good hearted, well-intentioned religious people being convinced somehow that the way they cared for their neighbor was by not going near their neighbor, that somehow they were, we were, told and willing to accept that the only way to be good to my neighbor is to not worship together, not gather together, not be in the same physical proximity, to not in any way, in the slightest chance at all, put my neighbor at risk of catching a virus from me. And uh, as Agamben points out, because of the strategic use of the asymptomatic carrier um, motif or figure, um, that further disincentivize people who otherwise, as far as I knew, were perfectly healthy to avoid their neighbors for their neighbor's good. And that that's where you get right to the crux of the problem is how do you know what is good? How do you judge when there appear to be competing goods at stake? And um, it's probably clear by now that I think the judgment was made the wrong way, that this commitment to the bare life of the neighbor and expelling everything else that constituted a neighborly relationship, such as worshiping together or visiting one another, that was the wrong call. Or even even the hospital policies <clears throat> that were mandated, leaving the sick to die alone without the presence of their loved ones or the presence of a priest or pastor to comfort them. And in, I guess in Italy, the corpses being anonymously incinerated without proper burial. Uh, the church for Agamben, the church has become Judas. The church has betrayed uh, its, its, its own calling to follow Christ. It should have been the primary public voice denouncing these inhumanities of the biopolitical policies of lockdown and exposing them as mechanisms of social control serving other interests well beyond the actual 
uh, um, danger uh, represented by the virus. And I think it's very important to say here, some churches did resist, some uh, synagogues, uh, uh, Orthodox Jews, other religious communities, they did resist and they did insist on meeting together in person. And a lot of them were roundly denounced by their co-religionists as recklessly endangering their neighbor. Or being heretics who aren't following the science. Right, 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 right. That was the <laughs> uh, which which Agamben says, and this is really interesting. He he. Th- here's another one. He says we can see and hear how the two other Western religions, the religion of Christ and the religion of money, have surrendered their primacy to medicine and science apparently without a fight. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was that was a very funny way of putting it. That we have three religions: Christianity, science, and money. And what I think is almost as astonishing as the as the uh, obeisance of Christianity to the science is the obeisance of money to the science. Um, and again, it, th- this is not fully the case because there were certainly some corporations that made massive killings, looking at you, pharma, um, from what has happened here. But the number of ways in which just that the economy was thrown under the bus as if it was some sort of like separate voluntary thing and not people's very livelihood and their vocations that that were thrown away. But um, yes, uh, churches mocking other churches for not following the science. Oof, that that's a that's a bad lookout. Well, and it's just it's a it's a it's a really sick understanding of, of the nature of science. Science is a self-correcting process that depends on the vigorous contestation of ideas uh, that can be tested in, in verifiable experimental procedures. Uh, and it's, it's data-driven, uh, and you don't ever suppress um, uh, dissenting voices. In fact, that's how you learn in science, when people challenge the existing paradigm and so forth, uh, and demand that the paradigm be constantly verified by uh, empirical inputs. And like I said a little while ago, it should have been clear after six months that natural immunity was just as effective as the vaccinations. It should have been clear that, um, or more, uh, and it should have been clear that, um, now I'm speaking as someone who's twice vaccinated and once boosted. So, you know, I went along with the program I'm a senior citizen. I've got some uh, health issues. So I thought it was prudent for me to get vaccinated. And I did. And I don't regret that decision. But it was falsely advertised. The president of the United States told us that if we got vaccinated, we wouldn't get infected. (laughs) Well, that wasn't true at all. In fact, last (laughs) summer, when you and Andrew were in the States touring your supporting congregations, we all had COVID together for a miserable week. <laughs> we certainly did. And uh, so I, at this point, I, I may as well say um, I never got vaccinated. I was suspicious very early on. Um, and I w- would just like to say my suspicion began when I realized that everyone was willing to go along with lockdown until the vaccine. And the mutual relationship between the two, the willingness to sacrifice life in all its fullness until a vaccine troubled me from the start. I had scientific doubts about whether a vaccine 
could be successfully developed against a coronavirus. And but above all, my question was, why are we not talking about treatment? This this thing has already spread so much. We're not going to stop its spread. We should just treat it for the people who get it badly. And that that is a whole separate uh, conversation about how possible treatments were. They were strategically suppressed because the only way that an emergency authorized vaccine could come through is if there were no viable treatments. Again, whole nother separate line there. But the point is that (laughs) in our last summer in our family, we had a mixture of vaccinated and unvaccinated people in the house. We all got it. And the severity did not in any way seem to correlate in each individual case to whether or not one was vaccinated. It's not even like the unvaccinated had it worse and the vaccinated had it better. It was that was the most I would say one of the most confusing um, feedbacks of a small experiment one could imagine. (laughs) I think just and I've heard so many people say COVID has been who have had it, how weird it is. Um, My sense of taste and smell have been interfered with ever since there. I think almost back to normal. And this is almost a year later. But I yeah. So anyway, all of which is to say (laughs) there. What is it? Wait, where are we going? I got I got sidetracked just telling the COVID story because it was so preposterous and the vaccine story. Uh, About uh, the lack of scientific rigor. Oh, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) So just just. I, I think what we, we want to leave listeners with here is that, again, we are not anti-science. We both, uh, Dad and I both, highly value science as a tool and a method for thinking and discovering things. What uh, Agamben is uh, saying, uh, I would interpret as the cult of scientism as concentrated in authoritarian authorities and experts who speak the truth and expect people to believe and obey it. That is the religion or cult that has taken over and displaced actual science as well as both Christianity and money, except for pharma. When an embattled Dr. Fauci defiantly told the world on public uh, television, uh, I am science, that, that, end quote, you attack me, you're attacking science. No, Dr. Fauci, that's not how science works. Criticizing you as a political figure and an ethical agent is not the same as as dissenting from scientific expertise. Yeah, I think that is like the perfect instantiation of biopolitics right there. Yeah. I think a few other things we should mention before we quit, Sarah. One of the most, uh, you talked earlier about contempt of bodies and so forth, and he has many thoughts about social distancing um, uh, as a formula that doesn't say physical or personal distancing. uh, I wondered about that right at the start, too. I was like, why is this called social distancing? It's physical distancing. Well, now I get it. Yeah, because it's a new paradigm of societal organization. It's an essentially political structure. But then he asks, of course, what is a society founded on distance? Yeah, <laughs> you know, what is a digital society or something like that? And in this connection, he has very interesting thoughts about the masking phenomena, which he sees as a symbol of the fascist future. Uh, and he talks about how that only human beings have a face. Only for a human being is one's appearance and communication to others a fundamental experience. Only human beings make their faces the site of their own truth. But what the face exposes and reveals is not something that can be put into words. 
You can't simplify it into a formula or a proposition. It is in their faces that humans unwillingly drop their guard. It is in the face, and before any words are spoken, that they express and reveal themselves. And what the face expresses is not only an individual's emotional state, but first and foremost, their openness, their exposure, and their communication to others. That is why the face is the site of genuine politics. So a country that decides to renounce this face, to cover with masks the faces of its citizens everywhere, is then a country that has purged itself of any genuine political dimension. They have lost the immediate and sensible foundation of their community, and they can only exchange messages directed towards a name that no longer possesses a face, a faceless name. I think that's a very powerful uh, set of observations there. Yeah, yeah, that that is, I think, one of the best parts of the whole book. And again, you know, <laughs> there is, of course, the scientific question is, did masks of any kind actually prevent the transmission of COVID? And th those questions were not really allowed to be asked. Now, I was not in the U.S. for most of COVID. And from what I have heard reported back from, from friends there is how much masking became a highly contentious symbol. I mean, Agamben talks about specifically about keeping the mask on as the um, dehumanizing of, of the social, uh, the populace. Um, but I know that also masking or not masking became a point of polarized contention and hostility between people as well and took on all sorts of further meanings. Um, and, and maybe you can speak to that. I would just like to say that, um, you know, Japan already the, had a, a tradition of a tradition, I don't know, a habit of masking when one is sick. And the mask um, in public, it's not really a mandate because things don't, uh, the Japanese constitution actually is more limited in what it can do, but they have an extremely high social compliance rate that's part of the uh, Japanese conformity culture. So um, anyway, uh, just recently, in, um, the mask mandate was lifted here. And yet, People are not taking off their masks. It is, I, I can't tell you like the amount of grief and anger this evokes in me that people still want to be covered up at all time, even though they're saying it doesn't matter anymore, even though they're saying COVID is no worse than any other flu, even though the government is saying clearly, you can take your masks off now. Uh, just the other day, I was up on top of a mountain that you have to hike an hour and a half to get to the top of. So lots of fresh air. There was a gaggle of school children brought up there, and these little kids still had their masks on outside when the mask mandate is over. And they're children. They're not at any risk. And just, I, I wonder what is going on here that people have come to prefer covering up their faces. Uh, and the only, like, tiny silver lining I can think is that as we have a highly video surveilled world, maybe people are tired of having their faces caught and exploited. <laughs> but I don't think that that's yeah. what's motivating people here. Um, and I, I, But I think the face as a political site, both by covering up through a mask or having it documented by video surveillance, I think that's going to continue to be a, a central problematic for us going forward. Well, and it, it, just, it's the, it correlates with the earlier discussion about how we've already internalized this, this Gnostic dualism, that what I really am is what goes on inside my head. And my body is simply a necessary physical apparatus or vehicle for that. 
and therefore this what Agamben is calling faciality, this this human face that opens me up to the social and natural world, um, um, uh, is something that I want to shut down. I don't want to be exposed to the gaze of others, and uh, um, I don't want to be infected by the uh, gaze of others or, or breath of others or something like that. Yeah. And of course, that's a, a self-reinforcing thing because the less humanly we relate to each other, the more we do see each other as as objects, as fearsome things, as bare life to be controlled. So the less face you see, the less you will like seeing face and the less you will like other faces looking at you because you'll know that they actually are objectifying you. Yeah. And so it's it's all a very dar- dark uh, analysis, isn't it, of, of what where, where the the direction in which our world is hurtling. Yeah, he uses this uh, this uh, wonderful neologism excarnation, as opposed to incarnation that we are yeah. are hurtling towards excarnation. But okay, so as we're we're wrapping this up, um, you know, we I, we need to address. Um, what the church has done and what the church should do, recognizing that there have been a lot of different kind of, of church responses. But one thing that really strikes me as I work through these issues is I see how, how brilliantly fear has been used as a weapon, because if you can infect people with fear, fear, they will be their own surveillers and discipliners. They will lock themselves down. You don't even have to have the gendarme marching in the street, which in fact did happen in France um, to make sure anybody outside had a hall pass from the government to go buy their groceries. Um, if you just keep people scared enough, they they will lock themselves down. So um, I see how fear has been weaponized. And I'm also very well, well aware that in the course of this conversation, you and I are obviously fearful of the whole direction that our world is heading. And so the question is, I do not want to participate as much as possible in this uh, biopolitics of fear. But it seems unwise to try to uh, fight that by saying, look, I'm really afraid of what's going to happen if we don't stop this. So how do we how do we begin to bear witness or live or expose our faces in a way that is not is not fear first? Because I would say that that's my my deepest um, concern about uh, lockdown critics. Like I said, I've been reading a bunch of um, they also are speaking of what they're afraid of. And obviously I'm sympathetic to that, but so are the people who were terrified of COVID. What, what can we do that gets us beyond fear as the main motivating principle to go one direction or the other? Well, you know, that pushes um, us as Christians and theologians right to the edge, doesn't it? Because either we believe the Easter gospel, fear not, the Lord is risen. Either we believe that and by believing it, no longer fear, or we don't. I mean, there. if you want an either or, this is it. Jesus is risen, therefore fear not. Um, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Uh, dying is not the worst thing. It's a bad thing. We don't want to die prematurely or alone and isolated from our loved ones. We don't want to die in a terrible state of fear uh, and so forth. All of that, those are reasonable things to be concerned about. But to live on the basis of fear of death rather than to live confidently on the basis of the victory of the Lord over the powers of sin and death 
That's exactly what's at stake in the integrity and existence of the church. And it seems to me that this is exactly what was not being said in the midst of the pandemic. What was being said was, oh, the scientists are telling us there's this boogeyman, this virus, and it's it's going to do these terrible things to you and your loved ones. Therefore, submit in all the ways we've talked about uh, today and so forth, you know. But I think, you know, the church should have been saying, yeah, I remember, Sarah, at the beginning of the pandemic, we put out a a podcast on Luther's uh, uh, advice on uh, how to deal with the plague, right? And, and, And he talked to how reasonably he fumigated and took necessary precautions, but he would never abandon his post. He would never abandon his duty as a pastor and a preacher. And he would be there with the sick and comfort and care for them. And that the church would be there together with one another in the community uh, of the risen Christ. Um, so I think that this whole epidemic reveals, as I'm sad to say this, how right Agamben is to describe contemporary Christianity as the Judas church. The church that, in order to get in with the uh, establishment sold the Lord out uh, for a a bag of silver coins uh, in order to curry favor with the the power structure. Yeah, and I I don't want all the blame for this to to fall on pastors. I know a lot of pastors who were put in absolutely impossible situations and um, a, a lot leaving the ministry as a result. You know, there were a lot of uh, overwhelming numbers of lay people demanding that worship be shut down, uh, refusing visits from their pastors or from anyone else in abject fear of what would happen to them. So, uh, y- you know, the and and uh, that that kind of fascinates and troubles me, too, that there was no tolerance that other people could decide to gather in church and you could make your decision out of your own, you know, particular medical situation not to attend church, but that the whole thing had to stop. Uh, why were there so many church members who needed their church to stop entirely? I, I, th- I think, you know, much of what we've said in the podcast in these years, Sarah, is that the Right now, the most active disbelief in the gospel is found in the churches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 also the the dreadful lack of catechism, such that we also did a, a special episode on virtual communion. Uh, Agamben actually says plainly, the sacraments can only be administered in person. He's not even a believer, and he knows that. Uh, yeah. And yet, as some kind of weird concession, uh, I think sort of a reduction of of at least communion, and who knows, maybe people were remotely baptized too, whatever that could possibly mean. Um, I mean, that that is a way of, of uh, making sure that, uh, as I would say it, is that the Amazon drone can deliver your commodity of Jesus' body and blood to your door, never touched <laughs> by human hands, right? So that you, you at least get the product that you demand from the service that is the church, but the idea that there's anything else to it is completely lost, and I, I think uh, the... Or, or that uh, the magic words come digitally over the internet, so you can actually have the 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 bread and the wine and on your desk there, being the body and blood of Christ that is meant for us when we come together as the church. Yeah, your body is irrelevant, and other believers' bodies are irrelevant to the sacrament. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The I, I think the the depth of the loss of of, of Christian faith 
in the churches themselves have been exposed by this. I would like to, I, I know that sounds so terribly harsh, but we're picking up on Agamben's analysis here. Uh, let me say that. And let me also say, many pastors, were the dilemma they were really in was, how do I hold my congregation together? And th- that, I think, was a genuinely pastoral response to the the panic, the panic and the fear and the divisiveness and the political polarizations that were occurring in congregations. And good pastors knew that uh, in this situation, they had to work uh, sometimes in very ambiguous ways to hold their communities together. Um, but that's, that's, in high, that's, that's history now. We're trying to make sense out of what happened to us and penetrate more deeply into the loss of Easter faith that has occurred in the life of the Christian churches in the West. Yeah, and I think uh, re-catechizing ourselves will also give us tools of resistance for whatever the next biopolitical venture will be. Uh, I'm afraid this one was so shockingly successful that um, whatever forces, conscious or unconscious, uh, bad actors or good faith actors who are convinced they are pursuing righteousness will be emboldened to keep on trying. And this can't happen again. I mean, we haven't even begun to talk about the collateral damage with suicide rates and um, other enormous physical health problems that went untreated out of fear of a virus that probably would not have affected most people. The as we, you, you did mention the loss of business, the loss of livelihood, the loss of connection, the severed relationships. Mental illness, depression, you know, and the damage that it was done to young, uh, the damage that was done to school children and not being able to see each other's faces for how many months, if not years. Right. Yeah. The the loss of speech, of being able to interpret people's faces, the loss of education. Uh, it, it's the, the collateral. Da- I, I think some of the reluctance to talk about it is the collateral damage is so enormous and the sense of being taken in while thinking that we're doing the right thing is so deeply shameful. It's it's easier just to ignore it and move on. So I, I don't know. I guess I don't I don't have no idea where our listeners land on this. If we'll uh, gain a whole lot of listeners or lose a whole lot of listeners as a result of this conversation. But I just want to say, say, uh, people, we have been badly bilked. We have had nearly three years of what should have been real life taken away from us. This cannot happen again. So let us uh, collect all of our resources and strength to live fully as embodied people who um, fear nothing except the Lord and um, that can act out of that confidence. Amen, sister. All right. Well, since that was that was pretty heavy and pretty topical, we are going to, on the next episode, jump back approximately 1,600 years and spend some more time with good old St. Augustine. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.